If you're listening to this episode as it comes out, but you're not a Herald Sun subscriber, we have a deal that might be of interest. Take up a 12-month digital subscription and we'll send you a pair of Jabra Elite Active 65T True Wireless Headphones. So not only do you get unrestricted access to the Herald Sun, including my weekly columns and much more, but you also get a pair of headphones to listen to this podcast, or anything else for that matter. The deal costs $7 a week for the first 12 months. Minimum cost is $364. Conditions apply, naturally. Learn more at heraldsun.com.au forward slash jabra. That is spelt J-A-B-R-A. Shooting unarmed, unsuspecting civilians at close range doesn't take any skill or nerve, nothing beyond loading and pointing. This was really the first of what we would call the American-style going postal massacres. On a personal note, I know that Julian Knight is cunning, devious and vengeful. I'm Andrew Rule. This is Life and Crimes. Our colleague Keith Moore told us the story recently about how he got into Pentridge Prison to interview the Hoddle Street killer, Julian Knight. It is surely one of the more interesting episodes of a long-time crime reporter's life, and I thoroughly recommend Keith's account of how he did that and how he beat other reporters to what was then the biggest story of the day. Of course, the story of Julian Knight, the man who shot seven innocent people dead and wounded 19 others back in August 1987, is a story that haunts all Australians because this was really the first of what we would call the American-style going postal massacres where a usually lone gunman, well-equipped with a modern weapon, embarks on a senseless massacre of people that he doesn't know. Before Julian Knight, we hadn't really seen this in Australia. We'd seen all other forms of murder and mayhem but not this particular virus. We're reminded of Julian Knight and the Hoddle Street Massacre because of the recent mass shooting in Darwin where four innocent people have died and several others have been wounded. Shooting unarmed, unsuspecting civilians at close range doesn't take any skill or nerve, nothing beyond loading and pointing, a point which was proven by the moronic Martin Bryant at Port Arthur. What it takes is to be mentally unhinged, whether permanently or for one moment of madness. Julian Knight should never kid himself that he was some sort of heroic figure, some sort of lone sniper, uh, Hollywood Rambo type. He was, as a fellow Pentridge prisoner once said to me, just a kid who flipped out. Julian Knight was sentenced to a minimum of 27 years before he could be paroled, which is interesting because although we often think that sentences are getting softer and more lenient, in fact I suggest that if Julian Knight offended in recent times he would get far more than a minimum of 27 years. The fact that he did get that relatively lenient sentence is interesting because it probably reflects a deal done between all involved, between the defence of Julian Knight, defence counsel, prosecutors and the army who took 
a great interest in what happened to Knight because, of course, Knight had come to Melbourne direct from his time at Duntroon Military College. These days, Julian Knight is a middle-aged man faced with being locked up forever or until he's very old because it would be political suicide to treat him like some lesser-known killers. And in the age of government by popularity poll and talkback radio and Twitter, no one from the Premier's office to the prison bosses to the parole board wants to risk showing the beast of Hoddle Street anything that could be mistaken for mercy. And there's good reason for that. And the reason is that Julian Knight, deep down, has never shown any sign of remorse and worse, he has shown signs that he could re-offend. And that is why legislation was passed to keep Julian Knight in jail until either he dies or he's rendered so helpless and hopeless by illness or old age that he presents no threat to society because those best able to judge consider that while he is fit enough, he would pose a threat to society if he were released. On a personal note, I know that Julian Knight is cunning, devious and vengeful. I know that he has written letters to the home addresses of journalists in Melbourne, just letting them know that he knows where they live and therefore letting them know that he could share that information with other crooks, crooks who'd be getting out of jail. These are really veiled threats by Julian Knight. Julian Knight has in fact written to me on one occasion pointing out that I had a family company named X and Y and that my full name was, you know, Aloysius Entwistle Rule and I was born on this date and the ABN number was that because he was able to find this information fairly easily online, in jail and he just wanted to let me know that he was in there being a very clever little chap. And this is the mindset of Julian Knight and he has done this with a lot of people and he has made veiled and unveiled threats to a lot of people and he has been discovered in his cell with the sort of materials that don't inspire confidence in any suggestion that he is rehabilitated. He has been found with Nazi paraphernalia and Nazi literature. He's been found with all sorts of things that could be considered weapons. He's been found with an array of material which indicate that he is fascinated by the idea of mass killings. It is widely held, and and I do believe this to be true, that at the time of the Port Arthur massacre in the 90s, 10 years after Julian Knight's Hoddle Street massacre, that he was bitterly, bitterly disappointed, in fact shattered, when he saw news coverage of what had happened at Port Arthur and where the normal person would have been upset to see such a thing happen. Julian Knight was shattered because, as he saw it, his record had been broken. He was no longer the man who held the record for a mass shooting in Australia. It was a moron called Martin Bryant. This is why laws were eventually passed to keep Julian Knight behind bars far beyond the 27-year limit set by that woman understanding judge, George Hampel. But, there's always a but. As with the Kelly outbreak in the late 1870s 
and many other apparently inexplicable crimes or crime waves, the Hoddle Street Massacre has a backstory. It's a story that the Army, and by extension the Defence Department, and possibly some political operators, have undoubtedly covered up. Back from when the first urgent telephone calls woke people in Canberra in the hours after innocent blood was spilled at Clifton Hill in Hoddle Street. No wonder that the army and others moved to diminish their apparent responsibility in what happened with Julian Knight. They could have a bit to answer for, such as the implication that Knight was an extreme product of an institutionalised form of cruelty and thuggery and sex offending that has screwed up dozens and maybe hundreds of patriotic young Australians who thought that getting into Duntroon was the start of something special, that they would become army officers and officers and gentlemen. And in fact, many of them went by the wayside because of what happened to them at Duntroon. So let's look at who Julian Knight was and who he wasn't. The first point we should make about Julian Knight is that he was adopted. He was one of three children brought up by an army education officer and his wife. But Julian was adopted at 10 days old. Now, it's an interesting point here that someone who's worked in the field of adoption all her life, a very fine woman called Pauline Lee, herself adopted, interestingly, has said that jails are full of adopted boys. And not all adoptees find trouble and end up in jail, but a lot of troubled people are adoptees and end up in jail because of some primal psychic disturbance, presumably. There are many examples besides Julian Knight. There is Mr Stinky, that is Raymond Edmonds, the man who killed two teenagers at Shepparton in 1966 and went on to rape dozens and dozens of women. He also will die in jail. He was adopted and brought up in comfortable circumstances, but was never, ever really happy and had a screw loose. There is John Glover, the Night Stalker, a serial killer in Sydney, adopted boy who had a screw loose. There is Paul Stephen Haig, a name we don't hear much of now, but Paul Stephen Haig, before night came along, was the person who was serving life for killing the biggest number of people. Paul Stephen Haig killed seven people, including a mother and son. An evil, evil killer, Paul Stephen Haig, and a story for another day. But he also was adopted. So Julian Knight was one of a series of people who probably had psychological problems from childhood for reasons that he couldn't understand himself. Here's the second thing about Julian Knight, the backstory. When he was 12, his parents divorced. And so this boy had been brought up as what they call an army brat. He'd been taken from army base to army base, not only in Australia but into Asia and other places. He'd been taken from school to school, base to base, and never really had a friendship group that he grew up with. He was always moving somewhere new. He was always the new kid. And he was this little scrawny guy who probably didn't find it that easy to make friends at each new school. It is a very tough thing for children. Some become the class clown, become actors or comedians or very extroverted, and some don't. 
The third thing, Julian Knight was accepted into Duntroon. Now, I'm not sure why he was accepted into Duntroon. I'm not sure how he passed what should have been strict psychological tests to make sure they weren't recruiting people who had the wrong motivations, people who wanted to learn how to kill people because they enjoyed that idea. What you really want in the army or the police force or any armed service are people who are willing to be trained in firearms and defence and so on and so on, but who don't really want to use that training because they don't like the prospect of hurting others. They just realise that they might have to if they have to. Knight never really fitted the mould at Duntroon. He was small. He wasn't good at sport. He was highly intelligent. He did have an IQ beyond 130, it is said. And someone close to him told me once that he was smart enough that he could dodge his way through the psychological tests without actually revealing that he was a narcissist, which is what he was, and probably a narcissistic sociopath. And when he gets to Duntroon, he's more or less the high school kid. He's the guy that's been to at least three secondary schools and many, many primary schools when he gets to Duntroon. And he is immediately the square peg in the round hole. He's in a group which generally is a sporty group, you know, the rugby players, the football players and so on, the athletes, the the sort of school jocks. That's the type. And not only that, they're the school jocks predominantly from private schools. So these guys have all got something in common except a handful who haven't. Julian Knight belongs to the handful. And Julian Knight doesn't have the personal charm or the physical prowess to overcome that hurdle. And so the outsider, in his case, becomes even more of an outsider. And this, of course, is where the army got it wrong. They should have seen that. They should have seen it coming, they should have seen it happening, and they should have stopped it happening. But they didn't, and they know they didn't. It was a very grave mistake. And I know that what I'm saying is true because I happen to know someone else who joined Duntroon in the same intake. And the person I know, I will call him Major Peter. That is not his surname, that is his first name. Major Peter came from far-flung rural Victoria. He came from a very small outlying district and he'd been to high schools only, but he was pretty rough and ready, but he was a good footballer and a good fighter, a good boxer. He used to box well. And so when he got to Duntroon, he realised that he, like Knight and a couple of others, were outsiders against what he called, you know, the old school brigade. But he said, because I could play footy and because I could fight, box, I was okay. But he said Julian wasn't. Julian had nothing to fall back on. And every time they ragged him or hazed him or knocked him about or bullied him, he really had nothing to come back with except, in the end, the threat of violence. And what happened eventually was that Julian Knight and Major Peter took on the other guys a bit. And what brought matters to a head with Julian Knight was that although he was a junior cadet and he'd been told by the senior cadets who had great power at Duntroon not to go into town and go to a particular bar, some bar that they used to go to. Knight insisted on going to that bar, and he went to that bar, and he was there confronted by senior cadets who probably uh, knocked him about or threatened to knock him about, and he produced a pocket knife and stabbed a person who was assaulting him or 
trying to intimidate him. This is, in context, somewhat understandable, but of course, highly illegal and the sort of thing that will get you kicked out of the army, which indeed is what happened. Knight was quietly shunted out of the army, whether he was discharged dishonourably or whether he was allowed to resign, I forget, but the net result is within a matter of no time, he's out of the army and he's sent back to Melbourne, home to one of his family members in Clifton Hill. And there we get the fourth point. We've got this 19-year-old. He's just been kicked out of the one thing that he thought he could do. He had dreamed of being in the army. He had been an army cadet at school. He joined the reserve army. So he was full bottle on weaponry. He knew all about guns and how to use them. He'd been good at that element of it. As Major Peter said to me, he would have made a pretty good soldier had he stuck at it or been allowed to stick at it, but not a good officer. And of course, that was true. And that was why Duntroon was wrong to take him in the first place. And that's what created this powder keg. And what happened in Clifton Hill on the final day or the days before the massacre was that Julian Knight had a fight with a girl or a girlfriend or a girl that he wanted to be his girlfriend and was rejected by her. And also his car blew up. He blew up the gearbox or the motor in his car. So everything that mattered to Julian Knight in the space of a few days had collapsed. The sky had caved in on him. And that is when he went home to pull a high-powered weapon from under his bed, which shamefully he was allowed to have. In those days, almost anyone could have a high-powered semi-automatic weapon, and he had one. He had weapons plural. And he went down to the park opposite the Clifton Hill Railway Station, and he started shooting. We all know what happened next. That's the backstory of Julian Knight. And... Undoubtedly, as events unfold in Darwin, as they do elsewhere, we'll find that there'll be a backstory. There'll be a long, sad story of someone who's pushed from pillar to post by circumstance and each bad thing that happens to them turns them into someone more and more dangerous. Of course, your personal history can explain why something happened but it can never excuse what happened. It's never an excuse for murder and for massacres and assaults. Read my column in the Sunday Herald Sun and online at heraldsun.com.au. Hi, it's Lauren Wood here from the Superfooty Podcast. We'll be here each and every Wednesday, wherever you get your podcasts, with all of the action from across the AFL. News, views and the biggest issues from across the game here at the Herald Sun. My name is Manny Karoudis and I'm a former New South Wales policeman turned investigative reporter with a passion for missing persons cases. I'm here to quickly tell you about our True Crime Australia podcast, The Missing. In this series, I look at old missing persons cases which have all gone cold in an attempt to try and uncover new information which could help see these missing people reunited with their loved ones or any form of clue that could bring these families closure. The Missing is available now wherever you get your podcasts and early and ad-free on Crimex Plus on Apple Podcasts.